Welcome to the Appalachian Folklore Podcast presents Stories from the Cabin, a storytelling podcast within a podcast featuring tales from the countries and cultures whose people make up the diverse region we know as Appalachia. I'm your host, Aaron Bobbitt. Hey there, folks. Welcome to this month's episode of Stories from the Cabin. This month, I have a tale that is traditional in Appalachia, links to Wales. Actually, it's a Welsh-American folk tale. And so I thought I would ask one of my Welsh friends. Yes, we all have Welsh friends. Uh, her opinion on this story, she's the one who introduced me to the book, the famous Bethan Briggs Miller of Erie Essex podcast. Uh, she introduced me to the book The Moon-Eyed People by Peter Stevenson, where I'm pulling this from. We thought it'd be a really good idea to tie in her heritage in Wales from Wales and Appalachian folktales and see the crossovers between the two regions. So we spoke for a couple hours this morning, picked each other's brains about a bunch of stuff. And, and when the topic finally came to the, the tale I'm going to tell today, she was a tremendous help in helping me unravel a lot of things, a lot of issues I was having with this particular author. I had a lot of questions about his writing style and motifs that came up in the book. It's a very good book. I highly recommend it if you have Welsh heritage and you live in Appalachia or if you are Welsh in Wales or somewhere in the UK and want to learn a little bit about how Tales from Wales, okay, Tales from Wales migrated over to Appalachia over here in the States. So without any other flim flam, here is this month's story. The Moon-Eyed People, Folk Tales from Welsh America by Peter Stevenson. Chapter 2. The Moon-Eyed People On the day Nanyehi was born into the Cherokee town of Chota, Tennessee in 1738, a white wolf loped across the moon. Her mother was Wolf Clan, and her father from the Delaware, and they nicknamed her Titsunagiska, Wild Rose, for her skin was as soft as rose petals. She played stickball with the other children, tended the shared gardens, and learned how to fire a gun, for she grew up in a wild place, an unstable time. People were fighting people, settlers were at war with settlers, skirmishes and feuds were commonplace. Nanyehi watched her uncle, Atakulakula. He allowed a group of Moravian missionaries access to his land in exchange for the building of schools. Some accused him of pandering to the Christians, while others believed he was using them to fund a Salagi education system. Her uncle walked a tight rope. He balanced people and settlers in either hand, and from him she learned the route to peace was through smoking a pipe and speaking words. She could do this, for people's law was overseen by women, and the men listened. When she was sixteen, Nanyehi fell in love with a shining warrior called Sula, Kingfisher, all the girls adored him, but she was the one his eyes fell upon. She had long black hair streaming down her back. She was clever and strong. Her words poured out like honey, so she met his gaze and never once blinked. She married Sula, and they had two children, Kati and Hiskitihi. During the Battle of Taliwa with the Muscogee in 1755, Nanyehi was at her husband's side chewing bullets to make them more deadly. When he was struck down, she picked up his gun and led her people to victory, then wept for Sula. But not for long, 
for she was now Nanyehi, warrior woman, and she knew this gave her the strength to lead her people into peace. She was presented with a black slave who had belonged to a Muscogee warrior she had slain. Nanyehi was seventeen, and she had already lived a long life. She was honored with the title of Gigao, a title given only to the most beloved of women. As Gigao, she held a voting seat in the Council of Chiefs, with the power to imprison or free people, so she became a mediator, always pursuing peace rather than war. She was fearless and never bit her tongue. Nanyehi married another man, Bryant Ward, an English trader who lived within the Cherokee Nation. She did not love him, but she took him. He called her Nancy. They had a child, Elizabeth Betsy Ward, and then he vanished. She knew he would. With her daughter by her side, she searched for him, and they found Bryant Ward in South Carolina living with another wife and children. His family were kind to her, but this was not acceptable. This man was incapable of being faithful, and she would always be a second wife through his eyes. She had no feeling in her soul for this bigamist. He had served his usefulness. He had given her what she wished for, a voice in both worlds. She was Nancy to the settlers, Nanyehi to the people, and man to the enslaved. As a woman and a warrior, she spoke of an end to war between people. In 1781, at a meeting between settlers and natives, she said, You know that women are always looked upon as nothing. We are your mothers. You are our sons. Our cry is all for peace. Let it continue. This peace must last forever. Let your women's sons be ours. Let our sons be yours. Let your women hear our words. She saved the life of a woman called Mrs. Bean, who in gratitude taught her how to domesticate animals and grow corn. And so Nanyehi became the first farmer amongst her people. She learned how to quilt and sew. She made clothes from cotton, and soon there was a division between the women who farmed and the men who hunted. She traded with the British and was given more black slaves to help with the agricultural work. For this, they called her civilized. Nanyehi was torn between a desire for peace and a need to protect her people's land. In 1780, she informed the untrustworthy soldier and politician John Sevier of an impending attack by the Cherokee, which resulted in him leading his troops into a brutal battle at Boyd's Creek, followed by the capture of Chota and the burning of villages. She also worked with Chief Okonostota, most beloved man of the Cherokee, who had chosen to fight alongside the British at the beginning of the Revolutionary War but switched sides to support the European-Americans. John Sevier wrote in a letter in 1810 that Okonostota had told him, It is handed down by our forefathers that white people, who had formerly inhabited the country, while the Cherokees lived lower down in the country, now called South Carolina, and that a war existed between the two nations for many years. At length, the whites proposed to the Indians that if they would exchange prisoners and cease hostilities, they would leave the country and never more return. I, Sevier, have heard my grandfather and other old people say that they were a people called Welsh, that they had crossed the Great Water and landed near the mouth of the Alabama River and were finally driven to the heads of its waters. Many years passed, I happened in company with a Frenchman who lived with the Cherokees. He informed me that he had been high up the Missouri and traded several months with the Welsh tribe that they spoke much of the Welsh dialect, and although their customs were savage and wild, 
Yet many of them, particularly the females, were very fair and white, and frequently told him they had sprung from a white nation of people. Also stated, they had yet some small scraps of books remaining among them, but in such tattered and destructive order that nothing intelligible remained. The first known Welsh in America arrived in the 1600s, a group of Baptists led by John Miles from Swansea. They left the Plymouth Brethren to found their own settlement in Rhode Island, which they called Swansea. Twenty years later, Pennsylvania was filling with Welsh Baptists and Quakers, and by the 1730s, they had made their way downriver to North Carolina, while at the same time the Welsh tract was established in South Carolina. The Cherokee were already there, with open minds to Christianity and a desire for appeasement in order to avoid wars over land. Many treaties were agreed to honor native land rights, but all of them were ultimately broken. The British and the Europeans took the land. Missionaries took their souls. Artists and showmen took their likeness. The army took their lives. Little wonder Nanyehi did not know who her friends were. The Cherokee were referred to as living in Pumpkin Town, a racist comment about skin color. In return, they called the Welsh moon-eyed people, not because they were small, white-skinned, and all the men bearded, but because they lived underground and could see well in the dark. They were miners. They lived by the light of the moon. Nanyehi, Nancy Ward, spent her life trying to broker peace between warring men, but nothing could protect the Tsalagi women from encroachment on their land. Her people warned her against appeasement, but she would be repaid with endless broken promises. When she was too fragile to attend a peace gathering in 1817, she wrote, Your mothers and sisters ask and beg of you not to part with any more of our land. I have a great many grandchildren, which I wish them to do well on our land. When Granny Ward joined her ancestors in the spirit world in 1822, a white swan flew into the air, and her soul was released at last. The girl they nicknamed Satsunagiska, Wild Rose, passed back into the red earth. She once had a vision that showed a great line of people marching west, mothers with babies in arms, fathers with small children on their backs, grandmothers and grandfathers carrying large bundles, white soldiers with guns by their side, and a trail of the weak and sick behind them. In 1838, Nanyehi's people were forcibly evicted from the land by President Andrew Jackson's Indian Removal Act and marched along with enslaved people under armed military guard to present-day Oklahoma. 4,000 died of starvation, disease, and cold. Women cried for their children, and their tears left behind a trail of white roses with seven leaves for the seven clans of the Cherokee and golden centers to remember the greed for land. The women knew they had created this beauty in the midst of sadness, and now they had the courage to protect their children who would found a new Cherokee nation in the West. The Cherokee rose grows all along the trail where they cried. Nunahi dunatlo hi lui. The rose is known to botanists as Rosa Levagata, a native of China, Laos, Vietnam, and Taiwan, and was introduced into America in the 1780s. It, too, has been uprooted from its homeland and planted in a savage world. And that is Peter Stevenson's version of the Moon-Eyed People. I've included a few extra versions of the tale in the show notes from Southern Gothic, Carolina Haints, and Stories, Tales from Appalachia podcasts. 
The tale that I told here is Peter Stevenson's interpretation of a traditional tale. The other three that I just mentioned have their own interpretations. They're absolutely wonderful and they're all different in their own right. If you really dive into this story, you'll see connections to fairies and gray aliens sometimes. But those three stories I have in the show notes are all fantastic and they are worth a listen. And I'll see y'all 1st of November with a new Appalachian Folklore podcast. Y'all be good. Thanks for spending your time with me here at the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. If you'd be so kind as to like, review, and subscribe to this show on whichever platform you use, I'd greatly appreciate it as it helps spread the word. And after all, isn't that what folklore is about? You can find the Appalachian Folklore Podcast on social media at AppFolklorePod. You can also email me with questions, comments, corrections, stories, recipes, etc. at AppFolklorePod at gmail.com. And you can visit my website, shows.acast.com slash AFP. Thanks to Jonathan Ochoa for the Appalachian Folklore Podcast cover art. The intro music is Stillness by Rivio. The outro music is I Can See the Sky by All Severed Lake. You can find all citations to the references mentioned in this episode in the show notes. Thanks again for listening.